Well, good morning and, and welcome to our single Sunday morning service as we start the visioning process that you, the congregation, decided on early this year. And if you recall back to the early months of 2016, uh, you selected the Center for Healthy Churches to help guide us through that process. And in particular, uh, a gentleman, Dr. Bill Wilson, who is the founder of the Center for Healthy Churches. Uh, this morning, we're honored to have Bill here uh, to talk to us in this service and then to help facilitate the meeting that's going to follow. Uh, Bill has a, a wonderful career, uh, over 30 years as a pastor, uh, senior pastor for three churches, a couple in Virginia, one in Georgia, uh, has a master in divinity, a, a doctorate in ministry, uh, but probably most important in Bill's life are three children, and I believe it's six grandchildren now, uh, four girls and two boys, the newest that was born on the 26th of June this year. And so we actually had to schedule one of our meetings around the birth of, of his grandchild. And so we're just really honored to have with us this morning, Bill Wilson. Appreciate it. Well, it's nice to meet you finally. Uh, we've been meeting, some of us, for five months. Been in your building about six times, <laughs> sneaking around. Um, you're wondering if I actually exist and w what all this is about and why such a slow ramp to get started. Remember that feeling because there's going to be a moment when you're thinking, could we slow this thing down? It just seems to be picking up steam. But Getting ready for something is almost as important as the thing we're going to do. So your, your season of prayer and your sense of anticipation and, and asking God to, to reveal to you his dream for your future, not just what do you want, but what might God need from us. It takes a while to, to tune your heart to that song, doesn't it? And to move away from the question that actually most people want to talk about, which is how do I get my church to be more like what I want it to be? That, that's what I hear on a regular basis. At the Center for Healthy Churches now, after being a minister in one church, I'm ministering in many churches. This week, I'll be in five different churches in five different states. I'll be in Nashville tomorrow morning, and Beaufort, South Carolina next Sunday, and Greensboro, and I was in Richmond, and Charlottesville this week, and it, in every church I go to, someone's asking me a question not unlike the question we're going to talk about this morning. How do we make our church great again, or how do we make our church like what I want it to be? Because it's not. And there's usually a pretty good list of reasons that it's not. So one of the first things we have to do is reframe the question. Uh, away from what, what do I want to, guess what? What does God want? That's a really significant shift. Because in our culture, we're taught to, to go for what you want, right? If somebody doesn't serve the kind of food you like, go to another restaurant. If you don't like the clothes they sell, go to buy. If you don't like this, go there. And so when it comes to churches, people shop. Have you noticed? 
And the consumer culture shows up at church and we begin to to skew our church toward what sells. Of course, just like businesses do, they do customer satisfaction surveys. I had three of those this week from everything, you know, from the guy fixing the direct TV to the piece of equipment I bought. And churches tend to begin to ask not what does God want, but what does the what do the people want? We're not new at that, by the way. It's not just a 21st century problem. It's been the nature of God's people all along. To turn what what began as God's love affair, an invitation to His people to come and follow Him, into an invitation by His people to God to, hey, get with us and do it the way we want it to be done. What kind of church does God need for the 21st century? Well, today I want to lay the groundwork for you for that question and actually for the next several weeks of conversations we're going to have and really for the next few months or even years of rolling out this fresh vision for your congregation. And it's important that we get this right up front. And to help frame the question, I'm going to ask you to let me introduce you to a, an obscure Old Testament character, and, and we'll, we'll do the old, here's what God doesn't need, and then we'll say, here's what God does need. That's where we're going today, all right? So what kind of church does God need? I want to start with the kind of church God doesn't need. And he, he doesn't need a church that's portrayed by the character I'm about to introduce you to. Now, before we turn to 2 Chronicles 36, go ahead and get started. It'll take you a while. 2 Chronicles 36, that's in the first half of the book. If you need help, 373. Just find that page. Let me introduce you to a character by the name of Zedekiah. Anybody here named Zedekiah? Good. I have a feeling no one's going to name their children or grandchildren Zedekiah. Once you hear this story, you'll understand why. Zedekiah uh, was the king of Judah. Now, Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. There had been 12 tribes of Israel, right? 11 of them have disappeared. Literally, they are gone. It's like they used to be here and they're no more. Parted off. Judah is down to the remnant, they called them. Uh, They have carted off the cream of the crop of Judah, all the the best and the brightest, and the leftovers are running the show. This is the Wilson annotated version of Scripture, so, but you'll see, it's pretty accurate. As Zedekiah is the king of the leftovers. I'm not making this up. In Jeremiah 24, when Jeremiah is making commentary about these same events, he describes these folks as the rotten figs left over, not fit to be eaten. What he's, if you've had a fruit tree in your yard, you know, you have apples or you have grapes or whatever, different fruit, and you have some spoilage. You have some fruit that drops to the ground or comes in late, and it's usually kind of flawed, and it's the part you feed to the horses or throw them away, and that's who's running the show, the leftovers. All right? Last tribe, 
down to the last little bit of leadership, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and we're going to read uh, verse 11. Let's start with 11 and read a few verses there. Zedekiah was 21, by the way, he's a ripe old age of 21, when he became king. And he ruled in Jerusalem for 11 years. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Stop right there. The kind of church God doesn't need is the church of Zedekiah. Now, in the Hebrew, there's a word used there of Zedekiah. It's the word stiff-necked, and then another word for hard-hearted. These two words often go together. You know what hard-hearted mean, right? It's just the Grinch. His heart was two sizes too small or something, and resistant to feeling or emotion. But what does it mean to be a stiff-necked leader? I began looking at this text one day and, and asking, well, what does that mean? I've played football. I used to have a sore neck. I've awakened on a morning having slept on the pillow wrong. Anybody had that? A crick in your neck? You know that? Anybody had neck surgery and walked around like this for a while? Yeah, I know about a stiff neck, and that's not what it's talking about. A stiff neck is a, is a metaphor for rebellion. It's taken from agriculture. Uh, these folks lived on the farm, and they farmed, and they had oxen, and we would say mules, and other kind of animals to plow the ground. Stiff neck comes from this idea that anybody been on a farm or worked with animals know that occasionally, or teenagers, occasionally <coughs> you, you run into an animal that resists guidance, shall we say. I've never done it, but I understand if you're plowing with an oxen or a mule, and you kind of say, let's go left, the oxen, which weighs 2,000 pounds, can decide, mm, I don't think so. I'm going right. <laughs> or I'm putting my feet now. Or I'm going to go 90 miles an hour straight ahead. And to stiffen your neck, metaphorically, means like an oxen, to resist the instructions of the master. Imagine a steering wheel in your car, and your car has its own mind, and you say, let's go around this curve, and the steering wheel says, I think I'll go this way. What a mess. Sounds like some of you are driving in Northern Virginia. So when Scripture describes someone as being stiff-necked, what they mean is they have their own opinion. To be stiff-necked is to hear the voice of God, to sense His leadership, and to say, eh, I think I'll go another way. I think <laughs> I know better. We think we know better. Sound familiar? You must have been in my house lately. This describes us. And no fair elbowing your spouse saying he's speaking to you. Stiff-necked people are God's people. It's us on our worst day. 
It's to sense God's call to love this city. Nathan, a beautiful city. And to say, yeah, but <laughs> I just kind of love these people right here. I don't know about these folks in the apartments, these condos. I they're not quite like us. It's to hear the voice of God and to read the text and to be convicted and to become a yes, but Christian. You know what a yes, but is? Yes, it says that, but <laughs> and whatever your excuse is, whatever your rationale is, whatever your reason is for not taking it seriously, it just bubbles up. Yes, I know the Scripture says to forgive people 70 times 7, which implies to infinity, but have you met my (laughs) mother-in-law? Yes, I know uh, Scripture says, you know, not forsake the gathering together of yourselves in Hebrews, but I got Redskins season tickets. Yes, but. Oh, yes, it's true. God loves a cheerful giver, and the tithe is the biblical standard. But have you seen my spreadsheet? Yes, I know this church is called to be on mission to the city. But that's a little more than I want to get into right now. I just want to come and get a good sermon, a couple of nice songs, and head on out. To be stiff-necked is the malady of the 21st century American church. And it describes the kind of church God doesn't need. God's got enough churches who think they know better than God about how to be the church. We don't need any more. I skip to deal with them every week. And they say some version of, yes, Bill, we understand. Uh, God's called us to be selfless and giving and to not be too worried about our own opinions and thoughts. But, and then they give me a long list of why their church is special. It's the rule of exceptionalism. We're all an exception so that no one's an exception. Right? We're all an exception. All of our children are above average. We're all special and unique. And so that may be what the Bible says, but it isn't for me. For Zedekiah and Judah, there was a high price to pay for being hard-hearted and stiff-necked. If you want to see the whole story, it's a mixed company, young children in the room. I can't read the text, quite honestly. It's the last chapter of Jeremiah. Suffice it to say, it's bloody, gory, and tragic. It's the end of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar finally grows tired, actually, of his antics. And after 11 years, tracks him down, surrounds him, executes his children in front of him, and then gouges his eyes out. So that is the last thing he sees. It's a gross, ugly story. It always is. Isn't it? When we choose our path over his path, it it inevitably has led me places I didn't need to go. How about you? We won't ask for testimonies, but I know they're in the room. Whenever we harden our heart and 
stiffen our neck and resist and push back and declare our own independence from God. We don't so much break God's rules as we prove them time and time again. About now you're wondering, gosh, thanks for bringing this agent of joy to our church. Good job, Niall. Well, I told you we talk about the kind of church God doesn't need so that we could fully appreciate the kind of church God does need. And that's us. So I was reading this verse and was wondering, is there any other word about necks in the Bible? (laughs) Kind of an odd thing to ask, but you can find anything on the internet. (laughs) Romans 16. You probably have better luck finding that. Romans 16 is a nice antidote to the discouraged and disease of Zedekiah. Now, the only problem is your pew Bible is the NIV, and it's got a poor translation. It's not just my opinion. It is a poor translation of this text, and I'm going to read you a better one. But you can still follow along. So I found this sort of throwaway line, kind of a casual reference. At the close of the the letter to the Romans, chapter 16, Paul's shutting down uh, the, the missive, and he writes these words, kind of closing out. I commend to you my sister Phoebe, who is a deacon of the church at Conchira, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever she may require of you for She has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. So that's about Phoebe. But then notice this next word. Greet Prisca and Aquila, or some people Priscilla and Aquila. That's wife and husband. A benefactor of many and of myself as well, um, who work with me in Christ Jesus. That's Priscilla and Aquila. And then then verse 4. And who risk their necks or in the NIV, risk their lives, but the Greek is necks. Who risk their necks for my life, for whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. (laughs) Great Priscilla and Aquila, who risk their necks for my life. What does that metaphor mean? We don't know what a stiff neck is, right? That's the one who's resistant. What does it mean that Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks for my life and for the church? Well, you know what that means, right? To risk your neck is to put your life in danger for the sake of someone else, right? To risk your neck, to to put your neck on the line if you're French and thinking about the guillotine, to stick your neck out. Remember? Heard all those? What that means is there are people and causes in our life for which we will give our life. If you dig a little deeper in the metaphor, what you find is in every culture of human beings across the planet, something is similar. Whenever someone, two people become very close with one another, or when there is a sense of openness with one another, there is a willingness to literally lift your neck 
And the reason is your chin, your, your neck is the most vulnerable part of your body. All five major cardiovascular, neuroskeletal systems all have important parts of stuff in your neck. It's your most vulnerable part of your body. And the human nature is when something's coming at you to do what? To duck. And you tuck your chin. It's built into you. You can't help it. And you're naturally protecting your neck. Conversely, when you become very close to someone, you reveal your neck to one another. Why do you think they call it necking? (laughs) Who thought you'd hear that in the church today? Yeah. It means to, to completely trust yourself to another person. They risk their necks. And we don't know what they did. All we get is their name on a list two or three places in the New Testament. We have an idea. They probably had the gift of hospitality and they were willing to literally put their life on the line to give Paul and his his colleagues a place to rest and to hide, sort of like the Underground Railroad. By the way, being a Christian in the first century was a very different experience than what you and I know. If they were caught doing this, it wasn't that they got a fine or a scolding. It was that they got crucified. And not just them, but their children and their parents and their aunts and uncles and their cousins. Everybody got terminated. You get caught with one of these spies in your midst, you're done. They risk their neck. They, they risk their very life for the gospel. You know where I'm going with this, right? What kind of church does God need? He's got enough stiff-necked people to go around. What, what he needs are Priscilla's and Aquila's who are willing to risk their neck for the sake of the gospel. What he needs are boys and girls and men and women who are more interested in being Christ followers than culture followers. What, what he needs are men and women who ask not first, what's in this for me, but how do we become the church Christ intends us to be? And if you don't want to ask that question and answer it, then please don't come to the conversation we're going to have later. Because you're not going to be comfortable. If, if you're coming with a laundry list of things you want, this church to be, go home. Because we're going to frustrate you to no end. Now, if you're willing to come and take that list and put it down and ask the question, oh God, what do you need from us? We're going to have a good time. I literally had this conversation with a group one time, about 20 people in the room, high-powered folks. And I could not get them off their list of things they wanted the church to do and be. I mean, they, they had a good list, man. They, are, they had been out and surveyed, done best practices, blah, blah, my cousin's church in Toledo and my aunt's church in San Diego. And they had more great ideas. And I kept saying, but, but have you asked God what he wants? Well, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, let's have a devotion. Then we can get to our list. Know those kind of meetings? Anybody want to pray? Oh, good Lord, help us. Yeah, okay. Now, what did I come here to do? Okay, 
get it all the time. So finally I said, okay, look, everybody take out a piece of paper and a pen, right? You got five minutes to write down all your great ideas for your church. Well, it's about time, you know, these guys start pulling out their pens. They start writing. I'm timing them. And, you know, okay, five, four, three, two, one, stop. Oh, can I have more paper? You know, they've got more ideas that we can get to. They're so excited about their list of things to do. The church is going to, unbeknownst to them, I had brought a shredder to the meeting. And I had it under a box. And, and finally I said, all right, okay, everybody done? Uh, 20, you know, who wants to go first? And this, this guy gets up, you know, he's the CEO of some company. And yes, I'll go first and come on up. I'll take that. Okay. Take the box off. I'm thinking either this works or I am toast and never coming back to this church. And he looked at me like, dude, what are you? I worked hard on that list. Who's next? Nobody. Come on up. 24 sheets went through the shredder. Boy, and by the end, ain't nobody laughing and nobody smiling. I said, what do we do now? And the WMU lady in the back row speaks up and says, we can always ask God what he wants. I said, thank you. And that night, everything changed. We ended up on our knees in that room with a pile of confetti in the middle. You know? And we said, oh God, forgive us for thinking we know better than you. For skipping over this conversation. You know that temptation? Come on. I'll admit it if you will. And what happened when we got our plans out of the way was we began to understand what God wants from us is a willing spirit and people who are willing to risk their necks for the sake of the gospel. How serious do you really want to be about this church business? How much do you really love this community? Really? How much do you believe God can actually do with you? My experience of most congregations is we dream this big and God is dreaming this big. We scratch the surface at best because our necks are not pliable enough. It is 9-11. I pastored in Virginia, down in Waynesboro, when that happened. Had friends here, the Pentagon. 184 people died that day here. Some of you, I'm sure, knew some of those people. I have a daughter who lives in Manhattan now, just a few blocks from all that. And, and for years as a pastor, it, this annual... Remembrance, especially the 10-year, it's always been a hard scene, hasn't it? Feels like this began a kind of downward spiral for us as a nation. 
And actually, it's about the time that many churches began to spiral down. So something happened for me a few years ago that helped me redeem this and, and not just remain fixated on what we had lost, but began to think about what could be. You know what happened? William Stanton Wilson was born six years ago today. My grandson. Today's his birthday. Now yesterday, 42 of us gathered in a little park in Charlottesville and sweated our brains out having a birthday party for a six-year-old. We handed out chocolate and it was like dripping down everyone's shirts. It was just ridiculous. It was so much fun. Such a great reminder on September 11th for me that it doesn't have to be just one of the worst days. It is also it is also one of the very best days of my life. What if the church could capture some of that? A, a, an ability to hold on to what means most to us about our past, but also a willingness to think, what is it going to look like for Liam, we call him, Liam and his life of faith? Do you know that Liam will probably live into the 22nd century? That he will probably live to the year 2100, if most stats are true. So will some of these young children. And I'll show you pictures of my grandkids in a few minutes, just because I can. And um, I'm going to make you look at them. And I'm going to remind you that what we're doing as a church is not for you. I want to, I really, I, mean, I really do want to make you happy, but I really don't care. I don't care. I don't care if you like it or not. Nah. What do I care about? Those little boys right there, will there be a church here for them? Those girls right there, will there be a 22nd century church on this property? And if not here, where? And what will it look like? And can't you just get excited about that? And if you can't, don't come. Because that's what we're interested in, is it? We want to hold on to our past but not be so stiff-necked that we miss what God is doing in the future. The kind of church God needs is the church of Priscilla and Aquila, not Zedekiah. By the way, the only churches that are like that are the churches that are composed of people and comprised of people who have made in their seats a personal decision to walk away from being stiff-necked toward God and to be willing to risk your neck for the sake of the kingdom. That's the invitation today. Would you like to move from playing church to being church? Would you like to move from resisting God to following God? Would would you like to move from being frustrated by your own plans to being completely sold out to His? That's what the Gospel is. It's not an invitation to come and observe and critique. It's an invitation to come and give your life for the sake of the kingdom. And in doing so, when you give yourself away, what does Scripture say? You find yourself. When you lose, you gain. How about it? It starts with every one of you 
And then it begins to bleed over into this church. And the Spirit turns from, hey, what are they going to do for me, to what are we going to do for Him? Now let's have that conversation. Today and every day. Let's pray. God, forgive us for our list and even for our opinions. And let your mind be among us. Would you think through us and see through our eyes and give us the ability to hear your voice and to follow your leadership? And would you start with each person in this room today? And take us where we are, with what we've got and where we work and where we live. And help us to ask the question, oh God, what do you want from me? How can I follow you? And then do something among us, oh God, that we cannot even imagine. For the sake of your kingdom, we pray. Amen. Just